it's Anthony Chadwick welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat from the Webinar Vet. Uh, really, really pleased to have uh, Natalie Arrow on the line today. I've got to just test myself saying that because, of course, many of you who've listened or watched uh, Natalie's webinars will know her as Natalie Waddingham, uh, Waddington. Obviously, Natalie, lots of really nice things about getting married, but one of the pains for women is having to change the name, which uh, can take a bit of time, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bit of a pain. I remember when I got married to my wife, she had to confuse the kids in her junior school by suddenly changing her name sort of mid, <laughs> you know, between terms. So she was McNamara, which is, of course, son of the sea, uh, before she uh, went off on half term. And then she was Chadwick when she came back, which was terribly so confusing. confusing. But of course, as a son of the sea, she probably would be very interested to listen to this podcast because we're going to be talking all things cetaceans. And obviously, as a veterinary surgeon, who's doing so much work uh, with uh, with cetaceans as part of the British Divers Marine Life Rescue. It'd be great to, to know about some of the really uh, cool things you're doing. But perhaps before we get into that, tell us a little bit about the history, what brought you uh, to, to working with dolphins and whales and porpoises uh, at this stage in your life? Well, uh, to be honest, this was, uh, this was definitely not the plan. Um, I think I've always had a background interest in wildlife um, and growing up as well. Um, it was always something that I, I kind of wanted to do. Um, but as I went through vet school, I was really put off by how competitive it looked to get into this sort of uh, zoo and wildlife field. Um, so I decided that I was going to try and embark on becoming a small animal um, medicine specialist. So that was kind of the aim when I left vet school um, and then the first practice that I worked at in Cornwall um, was very strangely enough somewhere that had a small um, seal pup hospital being run out of the back of it by British Divers Marine Life Rescue and on my well it was only my first few weeks one of the nurses at the practice asked me if I liked seals and I was like sure yeah why not sort of thing and she said, well, out the back in the outbuildings, you know, there is this small facility being run by this charity and they're always looking for veterinary help. So if you want to go and get involved as a volunteer, then you could. Um, so I was massively excited by this and went straight out there at the, the next lunch break to ask, you know, can I get involved? And they were really, really keen to have me there. The rest is history, really. Um, I've just got more and more involved with the charity over time, um, mostly working with um, seal pups, um, but also attending a fair share of um, cetacean strandings as well and doing a lot of support um, remotely for cetacean strandings happening uh, all over the UK uh, and doing a lot of teaching uh, on the subject as well. Um, so, yeah, it kind of all grew just from that first moment of that practice and having that opportunity to go and get involved and, and no, I am not a small animal medicine specialist. <laughs> and of course, um, Devonian born and bred, but now moved over to the dark side and lived in Cornwall. How does, how does that feel? <laughs> uh, it can be difficult sometimes. There are some, some barriers that have to be worked through. Um, but luckily, I still do my cream tea the right way around for my Devonian heritage. So uh, I'm still 
loved when I go back home. <laughs> and I must admit, I, I went to Cornwall uh, when I was still at, in sixth form. We did uh, walked around the coast and the people there are very, very friendly and was down there again recently, a year or two ago. Um, Nikki uh, Paul has a cottage down there, which we bid on for a, a vet life auction. And then because of the COVID crisis, everybody was wanting to keep their holidays at home. So everybody sort of descended on Devon and Cornwall, I think, didn't they, a couple of years ago. So it probably got quite uh, quite busy. But we were by Lostwithiel, went to the Eden Project and so on, but unluckily didn't see any, uh, didn't see any porpoises or any dolphins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the way of it, unfortunately. It's... Um... It's kind of what makes it extra magical to me is that when yeah. you're going out, you're never guaranteed to see anything at all. So if you do see something, then you know, yeah. it's very special. Well, I think that's the beauty of, um, you know, being a naturalist. Obviously, I think we both share that sort of love of animals, wild and tame. And of course, we're recording this today on World Animal Day, which is partly uh, celebrated because it's also the feast of St. Francis of Assisi, who's the patron saint of animals and the environment. So it's, uh, it, it is, um, it's, it's good that we're doing this today. And only yesterday I was traveling back from WS, WSAVA, uh, from Lisbon to Faro. And I was on the train and I saw about 10 flamingos off from the train and about a hundred storks. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it is that magical moment of, if you go out, kind of wanting to tick off things sometimes you lose the magic of just being in nature don't you absolutely yeah no you've, you've got to be be in the moment and just enjoy whatever whatever you see on the day mm. and sometimes it's the ordinary things when I was traveling over um, to the ISFM conference on the ferry it was just seeing the Manx waters flying in front of the boat and the occasional gannets Mm-hmm. Uh, it's those things that can re- bring real joy, can't they? It's yeah. a, yeah, it must absolutely. be a very joyful job to do, but then upsetting when when you see um, you know pups that are unwell or or indeed some stranded cetaceans. Because I suppose once they are stranded, it's usually a sign that there's something more seriously wrong. They tend to strand when they're unwell, don't they? Yeah, I mean, certainly a, a big proportion of them will strand because they are unhealthy in some way. They might be a very old animal that's just coming to the end of its natural life, or it may be that it has a nasty infection of some sort or an injury. Um, but we do also see cetaceans strand in a healthy state, as far as we can tell when we go and do the assessments on the beach. Um, and so in those circumstances then um, we'll try and get a vet on site to actually double check that they are healthy and if they are then we will attempt to refloat them Um, so in a controlled way we will try and get them swimming again basically Um, and when that goes well it is just amazing it's just one of the some of the best experiences I've ever had been refloating stations yeah it's very very rewarding when all goes to plan. What sort of percentage do you feel that you can rescue from a stranding, you know, of those that you go to see? Is it 10%? Is it 20%? Is it higher than that? Um, it's it's difficult to say, um, purely because we are dealing with um, uh, such a, a wide variety of different sort of circumstances and situations. Yeah. Um, 
recently I went to a mass stranding of, of common dolphins in a river in Cornwall. Um, so we had eight individuals. Um, and strangely enough, when they mass strand, it's actually more likely that they've stranded because of something to do with um, the sort of the local terrain. Um, so they've basically made like a navigational area, uh, a navigational yeah. error, sorry. Um, so they've um, come into the river at high tide looking for fish um, and then been caught out as the tides receded. Um, and if we can get people and resources to those sorts of um, situations, we can sometimes refloat all of those animals and the success rate can be high. Um, so on that day, we did manage to save seven out of the eight animals, which is amazing. Um, yeah. But when we see single animals strand on their own, I'm a lot more suspicious that they are unwell. And then when we're going to those yeah. lone animals, I would say sort of maybe 70 to 80% of the time, we're probably looking at a euthanasia. Um, but it really varies for so many different reasons. Hmm. And when you're working with the dolphins, you know, particularly that mass stranding, do they kind of understand you're trying to help them or can you still be given a, a nasty bite or anything? Um, they, I always struggle to explain what it's like working with stranded cetaceans because it's very unusual. Um, part of my um, dissertation for my master's was looking at um, these interactions that happen between people and dolphins at strandings um, and speaking to a lot of my colleagues who have been in these situations and they all kind of describe this kind of otherworldly experience of dealing with this animal that you know is an animal and is very very different to us clearly but at the same time we know that they have this really advanced capacity for you know high emotional intelligence um extremely social um you know very very close social bonds things like that and it's very odd just to deal with this creature that's so not like us but also so like us at the same time and you can make eye contact with them and sometimes you just get this impression that there really is somebody home looking back at you um and kind of you know reacting to what you were doing um and I've definitely had circumstances where I've been, or we as a team have been helping a dolphin and getting them more comfortable and things on the site where they're stranded. And they will respond positively to our first aid. So their behavior will become a lot more um, relaxed. Their respiratory rate will come down, which suggests again, that they're becoming more relaxed. Um, and that's quite unusual. Most wildlife, as you know, once humans are interacting with it, they are extremely yeah. stressed, very unhappy, you know, could die from the interaction. Um, but it doesn't seem to always be that way with cetaceans. So, yeah, they are they are quite, quite unusual and very, very fascinating to work with. And I think you see a real sense of the joy, which you can see in many animals. But that I remember going to see uh, Fungi in Dingle. He was a famous dolphin there that used to uh, inhabit the bay in Dingle. And he would jump at the side of the boat. Now, you know, I'm sure there are some other reasons, but there almost seemed to be a joy in being mm -hmm. close to people as well. And you don't want to anthropomorphize animals. But at the same time, I, I really understand what you're saying. There is a there's a close connection. They are such mm. an intelligent group, you know, whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
the more people I've spoken to who have had these sorts of interactions with cetaceans, both, you know, out cetacean watching with, with healthy, healthy, happy animals and those that are stranded. And people do use a lot of, um, uh, you know, quite complicated emotional terms to describe how they think the dolphin was feeling. And it's amazing that they've managed to get that just from a short amount of time spent, you know, seeing or, or with the animal. Um, so yeah, it's something that I find really, really interesting is that that sort of um, connection that we we mm. have with cetaceans. And of course, you hear about people being protected by dolphins from sharks and the like, don't you? As well, in mm -hmm. certain instances. So yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, and it, it must be such a privileged place to be in to be working so closely with with all of these creatures. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge, huge honour. Um, it's something that I never, ever expected to do. Um, so, yeah, I feel massively privileged to be able to uh, to assist them. So, so Natalie, where did you graduate from veterinary-wise? Um, so I graduated from the Royal Veterinary College in 2016. Right. And then you've done your master's. Where did you do your master's? Uh, that was with the University of Edinburgh, but online, oh. thankfully. Oh, right. And what was the master's topic? What were you studying particularly? Uh, conservation medicine. Oh, brilliant. Good. And um, you've obviously done quite a few webinars for us as well, as I said before, under the name Waddington, for those wanting to have a look at them. Uh, seal puppet health assessments, treatment of seals, and then uh, some basic stuff on stranded cetaceans and the role of the veterinary team. Um Moving maybe over to seals. Seals, I think, sometimes can be a little less friendly towards you when you're trying to free them from entrapments and things. What are the sort of things you, you, you are seeing? I mean, the Vet Chat and Webinar Vet has a strong focus towards sustainability and towards conservation. It's something that we're very passionate about as a, as a team. Um, presumably with seal pups and probably even with cetaceans, you're seeing evidence of sort of plastic pollution causing problems in these animals as well what what are yeah. the sort of things that you've seen and what are the common things you see in, mm. in that sort of area mm. so a absolutely massive global issue and also a really important issue in the uk and really really important in cornwall as well is um is bycatch and entanglement of marine mammals um, so bycatch being when an animal becomes um, entangled in a in a live fishing net um, and then entanglement being uh, when they are entangled in um, lost or discarded um, fishing gear. Um, very sadly, many of the individuals that are bycaught in those live nets will actually drown in the net. Um, but the animals that become entangled in that lost um, fishing gear, um, that can cause them a whole host of really really serious uh, issues wounds um, pain and distress um, generally it affects how they function so they can't hunt as well they become malnourished they become sick um, so it's a, a massive problem and it is responsible for killing hundreds of thousands of marine mammals around the world each year um, and sadly it is something that I have a lot of hands-on experience with from my work here in Cornwall and, and speaking to people all around the UK and, and other parts of the world as well. Um, so particularly um, where I am in Cornwall, um, as an example, we have a, a big issue with fishing um, gear. 
Um, so a lot of the work that we do um, in terms of kind of our um, collaboration with other organisations um, is around how to um, how to approach that topic with you know with the fishing community in a positive way and sort of working towards finding ways to prevent these horrible things from from happening. Um, so yes, for us, bycatch and entanglement, I would say, is a, is our main main issue. What are the sort of solutions when you're speaking to the fishing industry? What do you see as the sort of top three things that fishing industry could do that would really massively reduce this problem? Yeah, so there are some, um, you know, we can look at some solutions potentially like um, using acoustic deterrents. Um, so these are kind of devices that are attached onto fishing nets that emit a sort of high frequency sound um, that is meant to deter marine mammals from approaching the net. Um, and this works to a degree, um, but animals, and obviously with these animals being particularly intelligent as well, they will get sort of used to this sound over time and then and come to realise that it's not going to cause them any harm. Um, so things like that are, you know, of some use, but maybe not of long-term use. Um, for me, I think it's really, really important that we try and um, provide um, some educational materials for um, the fishing community just to try and help them in terms of understanding the, um, the ecosystem that they're working with. The nets, the plastic nets are, you know, so resilient. They will last yeah. for centuries in the ocean. So are there some sort of more eco-friendly alternative fishing nets that will eventually degrade? Um, I think there is research being done in this area, but I'm not aware of anything that's come up no. at the moment yet. I mean, the, the issue are just, is just the fact that, you know, we are using these absolutely enormous nets that are just really indiscriminate and we catch, you know, pretty yeah. much ev everything rather than just, you know, the, the species that we, we want. Um, yeah. the tra trawler nets disturbing the, the seabed as well. That's, again, a massive problem. It's the dredging, isn't it? Yeah, it all, all, all this sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's huge. Um, the, the impact that we have on the, the marine ecosystems are just massive. Um, and we really need to try and better understand that yeah. ecosystem and what we're doing to it and the fact that you know it's going to cause us problems in the long term yeah. as well as everything else the one that i was going to ask about is uh, line course tuna because that's a big thing isn't it with the supermarkets and what's the most eco-friendly mm. or dolphin friendly tuna is that something that's a possibility and i suppose because i think the dolphin really love tuna don't they i don't know if there's much tuna off the coast of Cornwall and Devon I think that's probably more a, a problem in another part of the, the world isn't it yeah yeah um I can't say I know huge amounts about tuna I know that at the moment there's actually we have um fishermen who would like seals to be culled because they see them as um eating eating all the fish basically and uh, I know there have been calls recently to start culling tuna funnily enough because they are also eating other species of fish that we oh, want to, right. to catch so um yeah it kind of um m m moves down the food chain um it's not just our ocean though is it this is the thing we we kind of sh should be sharing it with with others so uh, they've got a right to catch a few uh yeah of course well. and it's about yeah doing everything sustainably and just trying to get people 
I guess, to understand you know, the impact that they're having and that if they change their practices, it will benefit them in the long run as well as everything else mm. in the ecosystem too. So looking at these, you know, marine, pre- um, sorry, marine protected areas, um, really, really important, gives the ecosystem a chance to you know, replenish itself. Um, and then obviously we can benefit from that and so can everything else. Yeah, it was really interesting at COP15, which was in Montreal just before Christmas, the whole idea of 30 by 30, which is also a land commitment, but also a sea commitment that by Mm. 2030, 30% of our seas are protected from fishing because I think there's been a lot of studies done that show that if if you keep a certain percentage of the sea free from fishing that acts as nurseries and allows it to be more sustainably fished and I think it was post COP15 that the high seas treaty was uh, passed which was again trying to pass into law this commitment by many countries you know to the 30 by 30 commitment which is obviously very heartening to see if it's policed and uh, you know abided by. Mm. Yeah, I I sincerely hope that they manage to reach or, or even succeed those targets. Um, I'm a little bit hesitant to believe that they, they will achieve it, but I really, really hope they do. Um, and like you say, there's there's just this real issue around policing and, and regulation, which is going to be a really massive barrier to overcome. Um, but, you know, if it's successful, um, th- this will be hugely beneficial to to, to everybody um, and, and not just ourselves. So, um, yeah, I'll absolutely keep my, my fingers crossed. And uh, if there's anything that I can do in my work to support that, then uh, then I will do. Well, I think you're doing brilliant work. And, you know, the, I tell the story about the where you saw the thousands of starfish stranded when the um, sea went out and he was throwing starfish back one at a time and a man came up to him and said, you know, what are you doing? And he said, well, and throwing these starfish back in the sea and he said well there's so many you know what difference you're going to make and as he picked up another one threw it into the sea he said it made a difference to that one so I think with the work that you're doing you know those seven dolphin that were stranded eight dolphin seven of whom survived that is a massive contribution and you know it adds up if everybody's doing work of this sort I think it makes a huge a huge difference so you know thank you so much for obviously doing that and just maybe talking a little bit about the British Divers Marine Life Rescue this is obviously a charity that you're now working with and in fact I think you're now pretty much full-time with them or or you're not doing any small animal medicine work anymore are you that's that's correct yeah and is that a charity yeah so um British Divers Marine Life Rescue is a um, is a national charity, um, so we respond to marine life, um, but mostly marine mammals uh, in distress all around the UK coastline, and we do that via a um, a really big network of um, specially trained volunteers, um, our marine mammal medics, um, and yeah, the charity has been going since 1988 and has helped many, many, many thousands of animals over the years. Fantastic. And presumably, um, most of the the sort of strandings and when you're trying to rescue the the mammals, uh, you're not having to actually dive because they are, you know, on the shore. But hopefully, do you get a bit of fun and go out diving as well and see them in their natural environment? 
Well, unfortunately, the divers part of our name is more of a historical um, reference now. So the, the charity was actually started by a group of divers um, who were trying to help out with a um, focine distemper virus outbreak back in 1988 that was killing many thousands of seals. Um, so we don't really do any diving these days, um, but I am a, a recreational diver. Um, though I get out pretty rarely these days due to uh, work commitments. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in the sea quite a lot, but only up to your up to your belly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I try and uh, yeah, we're most mostly just in the shallows, thankfully. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, Fantastic. Uh, it's, good, it's good fun. What is the probably the most common of the animals that you're seeing around the the United Kingdom coast that you're apart the seals obviously but amongst the cetaceans as well yeah so the two most um, common species that we deal with in terms of strandings are harbour porpoises and common dolphins by far yeah and then presumably with the seals there's grey seals and yeah grey seals would they be the majority um, so yeah in the UK um, we have grey seals and we have common or harbour seals but funnily enough, grey seals are actually quite rare globally, um, but we have quite a lot of them in the UK. They are more abundant yeah. than the common seal, which is kind of confusing, but the common seal is more abundant globally. Um, yeah. Yeah, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I thought I was going to say the common seal was the second one, and then I just was not confident enough in my seology. <laughs> To, to make a fool of myself in oh, front no. of an eminent if, if in doubt, the comment a good shout. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, it's fascinating work that you're doing. Thank you so much for everything that you are doing for our th- these very special creatures, I think, seals and cetaceans. Um, I think they hold a special place in most people's hearts. Um, and I do hope that uh, the work that's being done on a more global level makes your work easier uh, rather than more difficult because i think with the strandings that there is a sort of belief that some of the poisonings and things that we're seeing in when when we're uh, pming um the cetaceans there's a lot of plastics that we're finding there and also various chemicals that are coming into the sea as well and and obviously causing illness in in these animals as well Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, we're still seeing the really long-lasting effects of things like the PCBs that were being used, you know, yeah. many years ago and have been banned. But um, we're still, you know, routinely, you know, some studies will take blubber samples and find outrageous levels of these uh, these toxins still um, yeah. in these animals, which then gets passed down to the next generation um, when the mums are feeding their their calves or their pups. So, um, yeah really devastating yeah but natalie again thank you for the work that you're doing for being that beacon of hope hope is something that i talk a lot about we we have to believe that if we do this sort of work that there is uh, a good outcome at the end and that was a lovely story about the uh the eight the eight uh, dolphins that were um stranded and that must have made you uh go to bed that night feeling pretty pleased with all the work that you've been able to do <laughs> I think we were all absolutely exhausted. <laughs> you um, slept well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, no, it was a very good outcome. Yeah. Fantastic. Natalie, thanks again. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me. 
also for the fantastic webinars that you've done for webinar bet and no uh, for the fabulous work that you're doing protecting these species oh, thank you so much thanks natalie thanks everyone for listening this was anthony chaddery the webinar vet and another episode of vet chat take care Bye-bye.